Um, now, I don't know, have you ever had a, a conversation uh, that you walked into with one expectation and walked away with quite the opposite? When I was a, a younger guy, I think it was maybe like 19, there's a camp that I used to like to go on and uh, it was run primarily by this guy who was just like the gentlest human being that I could think of. Like he's like six foot seven, but just like you just couldn't imagine him being anything other than just 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 gentle. Like it just it, it was so beautiful. And um and his wife was lovely and and so they ran this 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 camp and I called up late and she was really kind said, look I can help you out, I can get you in. I was like, oh I'm so sorry, thank you. This is wonderful. Um beautiful. Uh, and she was just so helpful. Uh, and then, then I looked down at the phone a couple of minutes later and I was receiving a call. I was like, oh, what's, what's the go? That's, oh, that's, that's Andrew's number. Uh, hello? And he tore strips off me for the next, like, next three minutes or so. I, to this day, I'm still not sure what I did. I don't know. This is the thing. I was so shocked. I was in absolutely like just, this is not what I expected. I felt so bad because he's like, you disrespected my wife. So he's talking and he didn't tell me what I'd actually said. I, 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 and I, I was just so scared and shocked. I was just saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And that I didn't even like actually ask like, um, are you sure you got the right guy? Like, <laughs> like I just, I was just so shocked. It was just not what I expected because he's just the most gentle human being that I've ever encountered. Also a good husband, apparently. Um, as we get into this first section of Acts, there's a bit of unexpected stuff, some strange things. There's intestines mentioned, which you don't normally you know, think of so much in the Bible, and there's, and there's strange events, and some of them seem almost a little bit sort of, eh, like you're just filling in the gaps. And so we're going to see some strange things, but also hear God talk to us about how to, uh, I guess, deal with him as he does things that we don't expect him to do. Now, I want to introduce you to Acts a little bit. Acts was written by a disciple of Jesus whose name uh, was Luke. And in one of his letters, Paul tells us that Luke is a doctor, which is good if it's true, because that puts him as an educated guy and you'd have a very broad education back in those days. So that lends a level of credibility to his biblical historical work. But how does Paul know that Luke's a doctor? The fun part is you can find out for yourself. Who's got a Bible with you? Or you, can, you, can, you can have a phone. You can use a phone. It works fine. If you want to, we can find this out ahead by skipping to chapter 16 of Acts and see something funny that happens at around verse 7. Chapter 16 of Acts, around verse 7. Verse 7 and 8. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. This is just Luke telling people what Paul and Barnabas were up to. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, so they passed by Mysia, and they went down to Troas. Now, those who've got your Bible with you, what do you notice when you get to verse 9 and 10? It goes from they to we. All of a sudden, it's, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, and from Troas, we put out to sea. You see, the reason that Paul knows that Luke's a doctor was probably because Luke, you know, bound up his wounds at times. And they were traveling partners. They, they, they did mission together. They traveled the Mediterranean sharing the gospel. And you can work out in exactly which cities they did that together too by just going through reading your Bible. And as you read Acts, which of course is now your Bible reading plan if you don't already have one, um, you, you, when does it say they and when does it say we? And you'll know which bits they did together, which legs of the journey. What was Luke there for? 
It's kind of cool. Now, Luke wrote this, um, this book, Acts, but he also wrote the gospel that we call Luke. And essentially, the sequel... So, yeah, sorry, this was just... They know each other from work, was how Paul and Luke know each other. Um, so you've got Luke and you've got Acts, right? These are the two volumes. They're actually the one work, though. They just sort of split up onto two scrolls. Um, and so it's sort of uh, Luke and Acts, one book. And if you can compare the intros, you can really see how the introductions are actually the same. So that the, the blue bits were meant to be the bits where you've got we, when Luke actually being there as an eyewitness. Now, now here in the intro, introduction to volume one, you've got just as many have taken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And then down the bottom, he says, oh, by the way, yep, most excellent Theophilus, I want you to know that this stuff is really true. It happened. The introduction to volume two is really similar. You can see it's the same style. It's the same language. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. You can see here we've got a, 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 a bankrolled work. Theophilus is probably the, not the guy who you know, Luke's really concerned about his faith, so he, instead of talking to him about it, he decides to write him a massive two-volume work. He's probably, the, he's probably the, um, uh, the benefactor, probably the guy who underwrote the cash so that he could go around and do the research for this. And so what does this tell us now? If we understand this, we've got this two-volume work, it starts out with the life of Jesus and all that he began to do, and it ends then with something else, this second part. How does that help us to read Luke's writings? What are we supposed to expect as we see this here? Well, the first thing is, is that you can see by that fulfilled word that Luke thinks he's writing a part of the big story of our universe. Luke thinks he is writing within, uh, where is the, uh, yeah, Luke thinks he's writing within this story that, that we talked about. He thinks that he is a part of God's story and his engagement with the world. And so whenever he's quoting scripture or prophecy or things like that, they're not, they're not sort of predictions or sort of, um, you know, the, like, you know, God hasn't just, it's not like he's just popped down to the bookies and God's put a cheeky fiver on Jesus coming back from the dead or something like that. They're not just sort of predictions for, for this is an orchestrated thing. Luke's talking about the intentions of a powerful divine God directing everything according to his plans and purposes. And so when we're reading these events, we should be reading them with that in mind. That's what those events are. They're not just random. Secondly, um, there we go. Uh, secondly, I want you to notice what Luke says that he's writing. He says, in my former book, uh, I, I wanted to, uh, to tell you what Jesus began to teach until this point. Now, what's the implication of that? The implication of that is, well, in this second book, I'm going to tell you what Jesus continues to do and teach. He's actually just identified the main character of, he, of this book, Acts, as Jesus. And lastly, do you see here in the introduction to volume one, oh, sorry, I'll go back. Introduction to volume one, he's writing about fulfillment. And so when we're reading this, we're going to actually always have to keep remembering, ah, oh, okay, if I really want to understand this, Luke's already signaled for me, you're going to need to go back and watch the first couple. Because if you don't, you won't get it. it do, it's not a standalone work. It's a part of a whole. So be, aware, be wary for that. It's okay. It's not a problem. So as we read, be on the lookout for Jesus to be the main character. Watch for his actions and his teaching. 
even in Acts, Luke is not just a historian, he's a theologian. In fact, not just a theologian, he's an evangelist, a missionary, right? And he arranges his material carefully to achieve his teaching purposes. So we should keep that in mind. And then lastly, we should zoom out and look back so that we can see the fulfillment that Luke thinks is going on. That's how we respect Luke's writings for what he says that they are. Now, uh, one of the... One of the great things that I, I really enjoyed about Marika's storytelling last week was that I was reminded that the disciples weren't expecting the resurrection. Like, did you pick that up in the story? She told this, these two guys, remember, they were walking along the road to Emmaus. Uh, uh, guys being a non-gender-specific term, I don't know if we know the gender. Um, and they're walking along, and, and all of a sudden, the stranger comes along, and it ends up being Jesus. And they weren't expecting that so much so that they didn't even recognize that it was him. And you actually see a very similar thing here in verses 2 to 3. Jesus here is hanging around. He's hanging around, giving many convincing proofs that he's alive. Like he's doing that, like he's choosing to prove that to people for, for 40 days. Like not just once, 40 days worth of many convincing proofs. Like call me gullible, but I feel like I can tell if you're alive. Like, like, like I, I feel like it shouldn't need lots of proofs of Jesus being alive for me to be able to work that out. Like, I see your chest rising and falling. I, like, my kids try and pretend that they're sort of half dead asleep if they want to get out of school, but I can tell. It's not hard. This is 40 days' worth. It means that, it, it's mean, it means that Luke thinks it matters. It means that Jesus thought that it matters. Jesus takes his time. 40 days. You, you can create or break a habit within 40 days. Like build entirely new neural pathways. That's long enough for a, a worldwide flood to go down, right? Actually, no, it's time, enough time for the rain. But ah, I missed that one. Dang it. <sighs> I knew there was something wrong with that when I wrote that down. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I, like, there's, there's silliness to it, but the physicality of the resurrection here is so key. Like even here it mentions that, oh, while he was eating, the physical actions that he's partaking of. See, the truth of the resurrection matters for Luke, and he wants us to see it. He wants us to see its reliability. He wants you to, he wants you to go to work on Monday having, you know, uh, listened to something you just happened to hear, some Richard Dawkins saying that, uh, that Jesus never existed or whatever other, whatever other things that are in the ether, and for you to know, for you to feel the reality of Jesus being alive now. the event that changed everything for these apostles was actually that the resurrection happened. And that actually transforms everything else in the plot of the rest of this book afterwards. In fact, even in this passage, we're going to see that the resurrection happening changes the way they read Scripture. Now, it's not just them. We have to reckon with the resurrection. So whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a humanist, or an atheist, you have to come to terms with the historical fact that there was an empty tomb. And you've got to work out what do you do with it. How do you explain it? How do you understand the history? And I know that when you stand it up here, you're like, oh, but of course there could be a million, a million uh, explanations. Like, well, yeah, that's what it sounds like too until you get into it, until you actually do the research, until you, until you look at what happened and the evidence. And then it gets harder to just wave the resurrection, to wave the empty tomb away. You see, since, since humans have, have existed, we've had one constant. We have had death. Apparently taxes too, but at the very least death. 
this temporariness, this, this smokiness, where you know it's just all going to end sometime. But the evidence is there that there was a man who didn't just cheat death, but he let death have him, let it defeat him, let it consume him fully, and then he beat it anyway and rose to life. You're staying in those verses for a while to let that sink in. He was there. Now, he's also teaching. You begin with what Jesus did and taught. Here, he's still teaching. And and about similar things to what he was in Luke, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Uh, And yet also this time, about what's going to happen, not just to him as the Spirit came down on him in his baptism, but also what's going to happen to his apostles. The Holy Spirit will come on them, just like it did once on him. Just like John the Baptist said. You see, this really is that same story. Just the next step. Now, I wonder what they're expecting. Like, if you get promised the Holy Spirit, what are you expecting? I really mean this. Like, do you think they would have expected to be as powerful as Jesus? Do you think they would have expected to be able to do miracles? Do you think they would have expected to all of a sudden feel good about themselves when before maybe one of them was depressed? Do you think they would have expected to, to become honourable or maybe enemies of everyone like Jesus? What, were they, what do you think they would have hoping for when this gift of the Spirit was promised to them? Well, actually, we find out in the next verse. You find out in verse 6. They see the resurrection. And remember, they've had their minds open to the Scriptures. They've actually, Jesus actually taught them how to understand the Scriptures and they all predicted him. Like He's done the biblical theology. Like He taught them that 10-week that series on, the, on the, the big picture story of the Bible. And in verses 6 to 8, they want to ask the question, so Jesus, now is, is what happens next in the story, are you going, oh, goodness, way behind in the slides, are you going to actually restore the kingdom? Are you going to restore the kingdom to us now? Because it's, and it's interesting as well, they said, they said are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel like not just Jerusalem, not just the temple, and not just Judea, but actually that united kingdom that's been gone for hundreds of years, over 500 years, 700 probably about. They said, are you going to restore that to us, the whole of Israel? How on earth could that be restored to them? Something in this resurrection thing and what Jesus has been saying actually gave them enough hope to think that that might happen. Now that's crazy. And I wonder if it's because they actually had Ezekiel 37 in mind. This is the thing, right? Ezekiel 37 is this big resurrection passage. It's, it's the resurrection passage in the Old Testament. You may remember it when I, when I, when I talk about it, the, the valley of the dry bones, and God brings Ezekiel there in a vision and says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel doesn't even have that level of confidence. Ezekiel doesn't even say, oh, God, yeah, you can do it if you want to. He just says, oh, can, can anyone do it? Only you know God. He doesn't even say God can do it. He's got less confidence. Yet these guys here are basically saying, Jesus, we think that you can bring our whole nation back from the dead. Which makes sense because this prediction is that God will do that. And when I do this, when I beat death, when I open graves, and when I put my spirit in you, then I will actually give you back your nation, the whole thing. Not just the Judeans who are left, the whole thing. 
it's sort of funny. It was a bit. I don't like disagreeing with uh, with, with with commentators, especially smart ones. But there's some smart ones. Uh, I think uh, I think it was Calvin who said there are as many errors as words in their sentence when they say, "Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to us?" And yet, if they put together what Jesus just taught them about the Spirit about to be given and what He just did, He just defeated death. This, the, that, the, just after that, that's what's going to happen as soon as he sends the Spirit and defeats death. They've actually used their Bibles well. If, what's, what if God's actually undoing death in our time? I can you imagine that? Like right now, what if, to, to, to think, what if God's undoing death now in our time and he, could, he can undo with our nation's death, bring everything back? What were they hoping for? Well, this... Maybe this is what's next. Well, Jesus doesn't go with it. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, sure. Oh, sorry. I'm going to go for um, Instead, he says, actually, you've, there's two things that actually have to come first. Two things must happen first. First, just as Ezekiel said, the Spirit has to come first. Don't get ahead of yourselves, guys. I've said it's going to come, but it's not here yet. Just wait. But then secondly the newly created humanity that this spirit comes upon is actually going to have to go out. Jesus says, you are actually going to have to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Before the nation comes in, before I gather everyone from across the world that I've scattered into exile and bring them all back together, you actually are going to have to become missionaries and my witnesses to go out. God's plan is to capture and cleanse hearts first before he conquers and claims kingdoms. God's plan is to capture and cleanse hearts before making it political and building the kingdom. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't actually rule. It's not that Jesus isn't a real king. Jesus is not just a... He's not just happy to be like an up-in-heaven social media influencer, the divine social influencer who just, you know, influences hearts all over, but really doesn't... he's, He's too wussy to go into politics and doesn't want to actually rule. It's just that he wants to get that order right. He is going to change hearts first and then draw everyone into his kingdom. He's not going to bring his kingdom fully until he's finished forming his people. And then, then he will. So it's not how they expected him to do it, as with many things in this chapter. But God will build his church, says Jesus. Now, it's at this moment, right after he's finished saying this, that Jesus leaves. He just, just ascends up in a cloud, sort of Old Testament prophet style. And you get that image of apostles standing there, slack-jawed, just staring up, looking up, like, like is he going to come back? Like, has he just gone to the shops? Like, like what's, how, just standing, like, I always have this, like, I mean, I, maybe it's because I, I didn't understand it for so long, and I still, you know, and... I just imagine them having no idea. And then these angels looking at them like they are complete idiots, saying, men of Galilee, what are you doing? What are you coming to heaven for? Jesus is going to come the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, Luke doesn't say whether the apostles were dumb or whether they really did get it, but some of you may have in that, in that text. Did anyone just catch a little, oh, that reminds me of Daniel 7. That reminds me. Someone's going into heaven, and they're going with the clouds of heaven. See, Daniel 7, we did this a little while ago. Daniel 7 says this. 
In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, Jesus' favourite title for himself, coming with the clouds of heaven. And which this is, this is the thing. It wasn't about him coming to judgment day, back to earth. This is about coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days, being led into his presence. Now, you've got to understand, this isn't just any vision that Daniel was having. This is the vision that made the guy who's used to visions, visions are normal for him, he's, he's, he's had them all through his life, made him sick for a week. He, this is the scary, scary presence of God that he is going into. And in that presence, this Son of Man was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations, peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never, ever be destroyed. They're looking for the earthly restoration of Israel's kingdom. Jesus says, no, I'm going to restore hearts first. And in fact, you're actually going to have to go out and share the message that's going to do that first. And then he goes and takes his place on the throne. They're just there staring at the sky. But actually, this was Jesus having the crown put on his head as he walked into heaven and received his due for everything that he had done on earth. It's sort of funny because Luke doesn't make a big deal of it. He doesn't, he doesn't, it's sort of a bit factual in terms of what they could see. And it's unexpected. But this is the moment of all moments. Jesus where he belongs, glorified for what he's done. It's not what they're expecting. But God is bringing about his plans and his purposes. How do they go next? Verses 12 to 14. Well, they're doing pretty good. Jesus said, oi, stay put, stay in Jerusalem. So they stay put, they obey. And in fact, they are in constant prayer together. This is awesome. Like Luke doesn't actually have a go at the disciples or the apostles here. He's saying that they are, they are together, the, the apostles, the 12, the, the women who were witnesses of the resurrection first and told everyone else about it too, Mary, Jesus' mum. In fact, even Jesus' brother, who also just didn't believe at all until he met the risen Christ in this time period, which we get spoken about elsewhere. Um, he becomes a believer as well, so Jesus' brothers are in. Everything is good. And at this moment, verse 15, Peter stands up. Stands up and says, guys, I've been listening to what Jesus said. I've been listening to what Jesus said. We've got to be, we're going to be witnesses. So we need more witnesses. We lost one. We lost Judas. And have a look what he says in, in verse 21. It's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism, like, like we need to get someone who was there from right at the start, guys, like needs to, all the way to when Jesus was taken up from us. Like it, it can't be someone who missed something. If we're going to witness to this, we need someone who was there for the whole lot. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there's a, it seems like there's a few of these people. Like, it's not just the 12, there's lots of disciples, it seems like there's a couple, but at the very least, you've got Joseph called Barsabas, and you've got Matthias, and they pray, God, you know everyone's heart, show us which one of these two you've chosen, they roll the dice, <laughs> the, 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 the short straw falls to Matthias, and he gets added to the 11 apostles. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, like, Peter's both in this place, you feel like he's just working with what Jesus gave him, and Scripture. And then he's even, even to replace Judas, even though it's a bit, you know, a bit, bit greenwashing maybe or whatever, you've, um, you, you've, 
you've actually got those psalms that he, he's trying to exegete scripture in order to, to do this. Um, I think there's some other fun ones. Uh, it says he was added to the 11, not to the 12, almost as if he's sort of not really one of them. But then it's sort of funny because later on then it does talk about in chapter 6, the 12. So then, oh no, the 12 is now a 12 again. Um, so there's, there's sort of e- either way. Um, uh, what was one of the other ones? Um, yeah, we, one of the other interesting things, we just don't hear from Matthias again. Like he doesn't do anything. Hey, yeah, nice, exactly. Maybe, oh, maybe, wow, we could, that whole media company, like all books could be useless now if we decide one way or the other on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, it, there, there's nothing in Acts about what he does. That said, there's nothing in Acts about what a lot of the other apostles did. So, you know, how much evidence have we got? But at the very least, what we can say is that so far, everything in this passage, the apostles have had ideas about what seemed right to them, and they've... It's been good and not a bad thing that they've wanted those things or asked for those things. Jesus didn't say, you shouldn't want me to bring about the kingdom back. He just said, ah, you, you're not, um, these things need to happen first and you're not going to know when. And so like with many things, I wonder if in this passage it's something that seems right, but just like in every way, the disciples got a little bit off. I mean, the last thing Jesus said is, just sit tight and wait, and then Peter stands up. It's like, eh... Uh, and that's where our passage ends, which is a strange place to leave off in a passage. It's like all the setups happen, and we get some weird occurrences and some sort of blood and guts, literally. And, and, then, and then, well, that, maybe that was just a filler in, but in those 40 days, to, like a story to fill in the time. Why is it there? What do you do with a passage like this in Luke? Well, one thing that I found that's interesting is just how unlikely, or just how what the disciples think is going to happen just isn't quite right. Did you notice that, I read it out, verse 21 and 22, it's necessary to choose one of the men who'd been with us the whole time. And yet, the person who Jesus uses most in the rest of the book of Acts was someone who'd never met Jesus at this point in time. Never seen him pre-death. The, the Apostle Paul, who in his pre-Christian life was, uh, was a murderous man, he was a litigious Pharisee, he was an enemy of Jesus, he was an anti-Christian, jailing and murdering anyone who claimed that Jesus was alive because he thought that that was really harmful for the world. And so the person who is the opposite of verses 21 and 22, someone who was there for everything, who didn't miss a thing, they, God, God used most mildly a person who missed everything. And who was the most against him? Not a man of good character. They did the character check. And this guy's the guy's t- terrible. Like, I, I, I sometimes wonder if Matthias maybe felt a little inadequate. You know, like he's a very Johnny-come-lately to the 12. And, you know, he's at the 12 meetings. And, you know, he doesn't feel like he could really say anything because he's not really... Um. <laughs> I want you to imagine Paul's credibility problem if he walked into church. This bloke will have jailed your family. And killed your friends. And he walks into church. How would, like, like, you literally got to imagine someone walking through that door who has done something like that and hurt someone in order to understand the depth of how unlike, it's not, it's not a nice literary thing that he's the unlikely hero. No, no, he's a guy who has hurt people who you know and love. 
and would have had to imagine the sorry conversations that he would have had to have had in his years, in his early years of being a Christian. See, what God is doing here in Acts 1 is not what even the open-minded, Jesus-believing, faithful, praying, relationally united disciples expected. They're getting on with the job, which is their job, exactly as it should be. They're not doing anything wrong, but God has got plans that are far above their basic faithfulness, far above what they had expected. These plans are greater. Some of them are really uncomfortable. Some of them are really unfamiliar, but they are better and more transformative, these beautiful acts of God. The plans of God are coming to fruition, not as the disciples expected, not with the kingdom, the thing that they want in the time frame that they want it. There's a journey to go on first. Stop me if this sounds like your life. It sounds like mine. Routes that I don't expect, things that I don't want. A journey to go on first before I get to the kingdom. Now, look, I'm not saying that Paul was the true 12th apostle um, and, and, and they, were, they made a massive mistake or anything like that. I mean, there are others who are named apostles later on, a bloke named Barnabas, a woman named Junior. Um, and yet Paul is so... The, he's the least apostle he calls himself, 1 Corinthians 15. See, what we're seeing here is both things happening at the same time. The apostles, God's people who trust him, they're just praying and they're doing what they can. They don't know the big grand scheme and plan. They are working hard, though, for the gospel. They are doing the things. They are obeying and trusting in God. Perfect. Perfect. And yet, at the same time, God is working in and through other things well beyond their ken, sometimes through what they're doing and sometimes completely differently. The first thing we're going to hear tonight is I want you to not be surprised when the way forward with God isn't what you think the way forward is. See, what if the way forward that God's got arranged feels strange or causes anxiety? What if it's not something you'd usually do? Well, that's the point sometimes, isn't it? If it was the thing that I'd usually do, it's not going to bring me a great step forward and make a change in my life, is it? What if God's going to do with the unexpected? Be open to that, because God knows more than us. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying throw out your wisdom. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying stop making decisions. The disciples didn't, and, they were, and this was a good thing. But be open to see God doing his thing in ways that you hasn't envisaged. Second thing we see, just two more little things. Second thing that we see in this passage in Acts 1 is the resurrection. We're forced to see the resurrection. It's laboured here. It changed, it changed what the disciples thought was, was going to happen. It changed the way they read their Bible, what they thought was up. And my question for you is, are you living as if the resurrection is not true? Or to put it even another way, are you living in such a way that's crazy unless the resurrection is true? The resurrection's true. People need the gospel. We can get amongst that. We need to get amongst that. This is, this is, this is our task. Last thing. Jesus is enthroned. We see God doing the unexpected in Acts 1. We see the resurrection so clearly, and we see Jesus being enthroned. Uh, you see, Jesus isn't just alive, he is king. See, when the New Testament talks about the gospel, uh, like we think good news, right? Um, you think good news and you think, oh, forgiveness of sins. You think Jesus died on a cross for me, God loves me. And that's all true. But the news is the, back in the day, the culture, this, this idea of an evangelion, the gospel, good news, that just meant the announcement either of a king becoming a king or a king conquering a new land. It was a kingly announcement of some kind of glorious news. The gospel is the glorious news that Jesus is king. 
that's the news. He's, he's king. It's not just that when we walk around there, actually there's someone who's got the cure for death that's hanging over all of our lives. Is that he's also in charge of this world. He's the boss of it. Every person that is in Hobart, well, is his subject. He is the king. And he will call them to account. Now, what makes it really good news is that it's Jesus who's the king. Because he's the one who would die for the people who are his subjects. It's beautiful good news. It is good news. But we've got to remember that it's the news of a kingly reign. And live each day that truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you use unlikely methods, things that are past our insight, to bring about good things. It's so beautiful watching you do it here. Father, we pray that you do that in our church, that through unlikely scenarios and situations that you would bring about your gospel plans and purposes. Father, we... We confess that there are ways in which we don't have in the forefront of our minds and hearts your, the resurrection of your Son. Father, please give us a heart to re, re it up. re it up that there is someone who actually, in our midst, who has undone death and who's got the answer for these things. In fact, who has become the king of all things. Father, we just... It is huge who Jesus is. The one who we follow, the one who we pray to you in him and through him is the one who is over everything. All wisdom and authority and power and might is given to him. He has approached you through the clouds to the ancient of days, has taken his seat at your right hand, is over and above everything, and he died for us. And now his rule... It has begun, as we saw it happen here as he entered heaven. Father, please give us joyful hearts as subjects of the king of the world. Father, we just ask that you would encourage us as we, as we sing this last song of death being arrested and a new life having begun, that we would take hold of this new life, that we would be excited for it, that we would live lives that only make sense if the resurrection is true that would be willing to have discomfort for the sake of people knowing the gospel, that we would be willing to, uh, to do hard things now to share the news that it's you who is king, even if the, that might mean being seen as foolish and stupid, in order to, please, Lord, in order to bring about that kingdom that the disciples so wanted to see and that we want to live in with you. So, God, please bring about your purposes soon, we ask. Jesus, come back soon and take us home. Lord, we long for that resurrection. But Lord, help us to live now as though our lives come from you and are for you to honour the King, knowing that we can rest in heaven with deep joy and that it will make sense then that we're willing to lay down our lives now for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.